After a deadly tornado, Mississippi residents move forward. I'm not mad. I'm not going to be depressed. I'm not going to be none of that because I lost everything, but I gained another day above ground. For Sunday, March 26th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. At a high-stakes meeting between the U.S. and Canada, unrest in Haiti was a top issue. But how do Haitians feel? You know, where people stand on the issue of foreign assistance really depends on physically where they stand. And thinking about quitting your job? LifeKit has tips to get your finances in order before making the leap. This is not about living like a monk. This is just accounting for what your needs are and then what you actually are spending your money on. First, the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Severe weather continues today across parts of the South. In Georgia, Governor Brian Kemp declared a state of emergency for Troop County as dozens of homes were damaged and several people were injured after a tornado touched down this morning. Two tigers also briefly escaped their habitats at Pine Mountain Safari after keepers say several enclosures were breached by the storm. The sheriff, though, says the animals were found a short time later and have been safely contained. Meanwhile, cleanup is underway in Mississippi after a powerful tornado Friday night left at least 25 people dead, many others injured. President Biden has issued a major disaster declaration for the state. FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell. What this major disaster declaration does is it ensures that we can bring in the right resources now to help start the recovery process and support any of the ongoing response actions that may be needed um, in these communities. She and Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas visited the area today. At least one person was killed in Alabama. Homeland Security investigations now say a second train car in Texas was found yesterday with a deceased migrant inside. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has fired his defense minister for opposing the government's plans to overhaul the Supreme Court. The government is planning to bring the controversial judicial overhaul legislation for a final vote tomorrow. NPR's Daniel Estrin has more. It's one of the most dramatic moments in Israel in recent history. The president has warned of civil war. Netanyahu's right-wing government wants to pass legislation that would give the government the power to select some Supreme Court justices. That has sparked some of the most massive street protests Israel has ever seen. And thousands of military reservists say they won't report for duty if Israel's checks and balances are undermined. Defense Minister Yoav Gallant called for a halt to the legislation. Netanyahu responded by firing the minister. The government is set to rush the legislation to a vote Monday. It could take several days to pass. The government apparently will have enough votes to pass the controversial legislation. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Jerusalem. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says his country can't yet launch a counteroffensive rather, because of a lack of weapons. And Pierre's Eleanor Beardsley reports. Zelensky said Ukraine cannot and will not send soldiers on the offensive without enough of the right guns. At the same time, Ukraine's top commander, Valery Zaluzhny, said Ukrainian troops' tremendous efforts are holding back Russia. The situation on Ukraine's front lines is toughest around Bakhmut, he said, but we are managing to stabilize the situation. Britain's defense ministry said Russia's assault on the Donbass town of Bakhmut had largely stalled and cited extreme attrition of the Russian force as a cause. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino in Boston. The MBTA is using the commuter rail to help alleviate subway delays. Starting tomorrow, riders can show their Charlie cards or tickets to use the commuter rail as alternatives to parts of the red, orange, and green lines. Blue Line passengers can catch the ferry to take them between East Boston and the downtown waterfront. The T is ordering trains to slow down on tracks that are undergoing safety inspections and emergency repairs. State Auditor Diana DeZoglio vows to move ahead with her audit of the Massachusetts legislature over the objections of House Speaker Ron Mariano. Late Friday, Mariano told the auditor he would not cooperate with her investigation. Speaking today on WCVB's On the Record, Mariano says the state constitution calls for the separation of legislative, executive, and judicial branches. He also says an investigation by the Massachusetts auditor is unnecessary. We are audited every year by an outside professional auditing firm. All of that is available in the clerk's office with a phone call. We also keep all our expenditures on the open checkbook account on the internet. Desaglio says her investigation would help increase transparency, accountability, and equity for everyday families. She also wants to investigate the state's use of confidential non-disclosure agreements. A study shows people who live in Dorchester and Metapan are not taking advantage of the nearby Great Blue Hills. The Boston Region Metropolitan Planning Organization finds many residents can't get to the popular hiking destination without cars. The study recommends increasing public transit to the 7,000-acre reservation. It's 5.05 and sports. The Bruins are away against the Carolina Hurricanes. That game just got underway. And at the Garden tonight, the Celtics host the San Antonio Spurs. Tip-off is at 6. In the forecast, clear skies tonight. Temperatures in the upper 30s. Increase in clouds for tomorrow. Highs in the mid-50s. A chance for rain tomorrow night. And keep an umbrella handy for Tuesday. We could see a passing shower. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Federal aid is on the way to disaster-struck Mississippi. At least 25 people were killed in that state, dozens more were injured, and hundreds more were displaced when an unusually powerful tornado tore through the state late Friday into early Saturday. Now, communities in four counties are struggling to recover. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports from the hard-hit region. In the rural Mississippi Delta community of True Light, friends and relatives are helping Kimberly Berry salvage some of her belongings. Her home took a direct hit from the tornado. It literally just tore it up. The roof and walls are gone, strewn yards away on farmland behind the house, along with her furniture. Only the floorboards remain. Hey, give me some. You said, I ain't Give me that little pole or whatever. A young woman is ripping out the back of a soaked and ruined chest of drawers, trying to find a dry piece of clothing. Barry says she sheltered in a nearby church during the tornado and came back to find little left. Only thing I wanted was my car keys, my medicine, and my holy oil. 
my oil, I found it in my keys. As soon as I walked up on that platform, I found it and I saw my medicine laying over there because I'm a diabetic. I got that and I'm, I'm content. Barry has two daughters and works as a supervisor at a farm. She's staying with her sister for now and figures she'll have to start from scratch, perhaps put a mobile home on the property. She's determined to keep a resilient spirit. I mean, I can get all this back. I'm not sad, I'm not mad, I ain't, I'm not gonna be depressed. I'm not gonna be none of that because I lost everything, but I gained another day of bullcrime. That's, that's it. I mean, I, I can't ask for nothing else. Hundreds of Mississippi families are going through the same thing, trying to figure out what's next. Federal aid is now available after President Biden approved an emergency disaster declaration. Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves. The help is on the way. Reeves toured the devastation in Rolling Fork, Mississippi, with federal officials today. The city's business district has been wiped out, and entire neighborhoods have been reduced to piles of debris. He says the initial search and rescue effort is winding down after 300 teams combed through the area. We do believe that we have searched in most of the rubble. Um, there's still a lot of damage out there. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done. If you don't have power, if you don't have water, Reeves says the federal resources made available by the disaster declaration should help speed that phase of the recovery. But he warned that's only the beginning of a long road ahead for the hardest hit communities. Both the FEMA administrator, Deanne Criswell, and Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said their agencies will remain active in the rebuilding. We've come to see it in person to communicate uh, to the people of Mississippi uh, that we are here, uh, not just today, uh, but for the long haul. Back in the True Light community, Kimberly Berry says rebuilding won't be easy, but she's not complaining. I'm just going to go through and savage what I can. You know, if I have to stay with a relative, I will, but I'm literally fine with it because, like I said, my life is more important than whatever's out there across that field. A sentiment echoed by many here counting their blessings in the chaos. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Rolling Fork, Mississippi. Tomorrow, the Supreme Court will hear arguments in United States v. Hansen. At the heart of the case is a federal law that bars someone from encouraging or inducing unlawful immigration to the U.S. And that wording, encouraging or inducing, gets to the broader question the court will examine whether the law violates the free speech rights established in the First Amendment of the Constitution. And given that potential impact, we wanted to learn more about this case, so we called Amanda Shaner. She is a constitutional law scholar whose work focuses on the First Amendment, and she currently teaches at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Shaner, welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks so much. It's great to be with you, Scott. So let's start with the details of the case that the justices will be hearing about. What happened and what's the main question here? So the case is about a man, Helaman Hansen, who for about four years falsely promised undocumented immigrants that they could, if they paid him, become U.S. citizens through what he called an adult adoption program. But that program was actually a ruse that would not lead to citizenship. So he was charged under the law that you said that prohibits or criminalizes encouraging or inducing unlawful immigration. Now, is this one of those cases that isn't really about 
that violation specifically? Because it sounds to me, I hear that, and it seems like that, well, that seems pretty clear-cut fraud. It seems pretty clear-cut that this person broke the law. Or is this more about what that implies on broader questions? Exactly. It's about what it implies on broader questions. And the case really has the potential to have a pretty significant effect on the future of First Amendment law. So I guess I should explain. So it's a First Amendment challenge to this law that prohibits encouraging or inducing people either to unlawfully come to the United States or to reside in the United States. And the challenge brought by Hansen is actually under something called the overbreath doctrine. And what the overbreath doctrine is, it's an important First Amendment doctrine that allows somebody to whom the law could be constitutionally applied to challenge it because the law is so broad that it actually criminalizes a whole set of other protected speech. Okay, so me saying to you, give me money and I'll give you something that I have no intention of giving you. Again, seems like it's on the more clear-cut end of things. What is a hypothetical example that lawyers have been talking about as this case has made its way through the courts that is more murky and that might be up in the air? Well, so the law criminalizes encouraging someone to, like I said, either come or reside in the United States unlawfully. So that might include, for example, a grandmother who tells her undocumented grandchild that she doesn't want the child to leave her or a doctor who advises a patient with an expiring visa that she needs medical treatment that's only available in the United States. There's a whole host of examples like that that seem like on a normal reading, just a straightforward reading of encouragement could be captured by the act and seem like they would be protected by the First Amendment. What is the federal government's argument against that framing? So the federal government has taken a different position in the courts of appeals than it did originally at Hansen's trial. It now says that the law specifically encourage or induce that language means soliciting or aiding and abetting, mm-hmm. which are terms of art in criminal law that are much narrower and wouldn't, for example, capture something like the grandmother or the doctor example. And so they say that the court should read the law in a narrower way that wouldn't raise all of these First Amendment concerns that Hansen has raised. And therefore, the court shouldn't strike down the law as unconstitutional. You talked about the big implications for the First Amendment. I mean, what's the wide range of outcomes that we could see here when it comes to how this could be applied, depending on what the justices decide? Well, because this case has, um, well, so first, of course, it could bear on, you know, uh, have effects on immigration enforcement, but it could have a bigger effect on the trajectory of First Amendment law with implications for dissent and incitement, um, solicitation and aiding and abetting liability, what's Uh, constitutional under those doctrines, as well as social media regulation. Um, So for example, uh, aiding and abetting liability and incitement have exceptions from First Amendment law. And part of the question here is how big are those exceptions? How much does the First Amendment protect or not? And that could have big implications down the line for a whole host of things, but including even, you know, if uh, former President Trump is indicted for incitement, the kinds of questions uh, and the court's opinion here could bear on that. It could also bear on the scope of potential liability for social media companies. Uh, There's another couple cases before the court now that this case interacts with. Well, that leads to a question about this political moment and this particular court, because we know that in the current makeup, you know, despite everything that Chief Justice Roberts wishes, this court has shown a willingness to overturn longstanding precedent. It does not shy away from broad and controversial rulings. 
Do you think there's a world where the court takes this case and uses it to issue pretty broad new understandings of the First Amendment? So I think that's the big question here. I mean, part of what we're going to see in this case is whether or not this newly configured court is going to stay with a set of earlier courts trends to adopt ever more speech protective rules or if they're going to chart potentially a very different course. And I think we're going to have to wait and see. I think the only thing that we know for sure is that the argument on Monday will be very interesting. And I think that the opinion uh, and resulting law will be important. Okay, so I feel like experts like you always get annoyed when reporters like me say, well, what did you make of the oral arguments? What, what, what sort of tea <laughs> leaves were there? So I'm going to be even more annoying and ask you before the arguments happened, what are the types of things that you will be on the lookout for as the justices uh, ask their questions? I expect to see the government really trying to get away from all of the hypotheticals about grandmothers and doctors and priests and lawyers uh, that are certainly going to come up at argument. And so I think that they're going to say, essentially, you know, you should read this law more narrowly and probably remand it, essentially make the case be much less important and much narrower than it was originally teed up. Mm -hmm. But I anticipate that a significant part of the court is going to be underwhelmed by the notion that mere encouragement alone uh, could get you caught up in a criminal law that could send you to jail for five or 10 years. But it's hard to say, again, because, you know, this court has been known for making big moves, and this is an area that they could make big moves that would affect, you know, like I said, a very diverse set of possible cases in the future. That was Amanda Shaner, a constitutional law scholar whose work focuses on the First Amendment. She teaches at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Shaner, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for joining us on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino in Boston. Want to stay updated on upcoming WBUR events at City Space and throughout greater Boston and get first crack at tickets? Sign up for the WBUR Events Newsletter. Just go to WBUR.org slash newsletters. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. The time is 518. Coming up at 6, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at Zevin.com. And Mass Art, celebrating 150 years with the Mass Art Auction, April 1st, featuring 370 works of art. To buy tickets, visit massartauction.org. Main Herbst with these headlines. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has fired his defense minister one day after the former army general called for a halt to the planned overhaul of Israel's judiciary that has fiercely divided the country and led to ongoing protests. 
The death toll from a powerful explosion in a chocolate factory in West Reading, Pennsylvania, has risen to at least four. That blast also damaged a nearby building. So far, there's no word on the cause. And in Italy, officials are warning of a massive surge in migrants trying to cross the Mediterranean from Africa to Europe if the European Union and the IMF don't provide financial aid to underdeveloped African countries. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Alfred A. Knopf, publisher of Surrender, 40 Songs, One Story, the new memoir written and read by Bono, artist, activist, and lead singer of U2. Available everywhere books and audiobooks are sold. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. President Biden went to Ottawa this past week to meet Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Their meetings focused on many of the big issues the two North American leaders usually talk about, immigration, countering China, But Biden and Trudeau also talked about the growing instability in Haiti. A new United Nations analysis estimates that nearly half of Haiti's 12 million residents are now experiencing high levels of acute hunger and will need urgent humanitarian assistance. The deepening crisis is being fueled by a lack of rainfall, skyrocketing inflation, and mostly escalating gang violence. Miami Herald reporter Jacqueline Charles has been covering the story and joins us now. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. Let's just start with the basics. What is the current situation right now in Haiti's capital, Port-au-Prince? The current situation is that you don't know when you're going to be the next victim. And we're talking about kidnappings, killings, rape. The gangs are monopolizing violence and no one is immune, rich or poor. Every day we're receiving reports of people having to flee their homes. This includes people who live in, you know, million-dollar homes in the mountains. Um, The gangs are now taking control of not just 60 percent of the capital, as the U.N. said a few months ago, but, you know, the majority, even more, of the capital is now under their control. What are some of the big-picture reasons why this power concentration has sped up, why this problem has grown so much worse. You're looking at a country in deepening political turmoil. The president was assassinated July of 2021. No one has yet been held accountable. There have been arrests. There have been charges here in the United States. The case is still under, quote unquote, investigation in Haiti, even though more than 40 people um, have been arrested. There's no elected officials. The last 10 elected officials in this country, their terms in office ended in January. So what you're seeing today in Haiti is just almost a perfect storm of you know, all of the issues that have plagued this country since, you know, it ended dictatorship, corruption, you know, poor governance, weak governance, non-existent institutions. It's all coming to fruition and the gangs have stepped into that power vacuum and now they're wreaking havoc all over. And just to get the full context, remind us how bad the economy is and how bad inflation is right now. 
Inflation is about 48%. You know, what does that mean in a country where the majority of people live on less than $2 a day? Everything is being imported. People can't even afford, um, you know, basics. The price of basic staples has gone up like 87% in some cases. Hunger is deepening. The United Nations said this week that you're now looking at almost half of the population just cannot find enough food to eat. Malnutrition is also a problem. And of course, there's a deadly cholera outbreak. And why is there this outbreak? Because people don't have access to potable water. Why don't they have access to potable water? Because the gangs are preventing water trucks from getting access to basic neighborhoods. So even in terms of the humanitarian aid, they are on the ground. Agencies have been doing their best to get food and water and other aid to people, but it's been very difficult. We've had hospitals just in the last couple of weeks have announced that they've had to close their doors because outside sounds like a war zone. And we're talking about Medicine Sun Frontier, Doctors Without Borders. Their reputation is that they work in war zones and they're telling you that the situation is so bad in Haiti that they can't even keep their doors open. How is this current crisis different than the many previous ones that Haiti has has faced? And what are people talking about as a possible solution? I mean, there's this conversation of some sort of foreign intervention in one way or, or another. Would that solve the problem? Would that begin to solve the problem? Well, this crisis is unprecedented. You know, the last time there was a president that was killed in Haiti was a century ago. And the response was the United States, you know, moved into Haiti and occupied the country for 19 years. Um, that history is also playing itself out here. And it's also shaping the way that people view this idea of another possible foreign you know, intervention. Um, we've seen that the U.S. had talked about supporting um, a multilateral force into Haiti. They wanted Canada to lead this operation. They didn't want it to be a United Nations um, operation because Haiti has had eight U.N. peacekeeping missions in about 30 years. Canada does not seem poised to do that. And so the focus is now shift by the Biden administration to now they're once again looking at a peacekeeping operation. And how's that going over? Because as as you said, that has happened over and over and over again with often uh, limited or no results. You know, where people stand on the issue of foreign assistance really depends on physically where they stand. I think for Haitians who are living in the United States, this idea of foreign peacekeepers or foreign troops on the ground is in Haiti, a country they think of as a sovereign country, it is not something that they're open to. But for the individuals that are there on the ground that have to worry about their, their, their children being raped or, you know, being kidnapped in schools because the gangs are now kidnapping kids in school, they just want help. They don't have um, a lot of faith in the in the police and they realize that the police cannot um, battle the gangs on their own and so you know the international community you know really has a huge task in front of it but you know what observers on the ground are saying that it cannot just be a SWAT mission that responds to the violence it has to be something that's holistic that deals with why is there the violence you know this is a country with serious inequality deep poverty how do you address those issues that are leading people into gangs and that are leading people to think that it's okay Okay to do kidnappings. It's okay to kill. And let's also be clear is that the police are being outgunned by gangs who are heavily armed and those weapons are coming from the United States. So that's also a huge issue in terms of this is a country with a U.S. arms embargo. How is it that gangs are getting access to guns, high caliber weapons and ammunition? What is being done to prevent that? Jacqueline Charles with Miami Herald. Thanks so much. Thanks. One of my jobs here at NPR is co-hosting the NPR Politics Podcast. 
This week, the show took a close look at how Florida voters are responding to Governor Ron DeSantis' embrace of the culture wars. DeSantis is eyeing a run for president. He's made a national name for himself among Republican voters by taking on big companies like Disney and limiting how sexual orientation, gender identity, and race are discussed and taught in Florida classrooms. As DeSantis takes trips to key presidential states like Iowa this year, he's also planning to forbid any classroom instruction on sexual orientation or gender identity all the way up through senior year of high school. That would expand upon the controversial law the governor signed last year that banned such instruction from kindergarten through third grade. NPR's congressional correspondent, Claudia Grisales, went to Florida to see how all of this is playing with voters there. My co-host of the Politics Podcast, Asma Khalid, talked to Claudia about this, along with senior political editor and correspondent, Domenico Montanaro. And Asma started the conversation by asking Claudia what voters told her. It's really interesting. I spoke to a lot of Latino conservative voters in South Florida, in Miami-Dade County, and they have a lot of excitement, a lot of energy for Governor DeSantis. In in particular, they're excited about his approach to a lot of these culture wars. They really related to a lot of that. It was interesting. Some would say that they were former supporters of ex-President Trump, but now they're moving on to the Florida governor because they see Trump is weakened, whether it's by Democrats or by Trump's own hand, and they see the Florida governor as a stronger figure. And he's bringing that same message, they say, of I alone can fix this. And so that ability to stand up, that reminded them of the kind of forceful kind of language they would like to see used by a president against a lot of these regimes in Venezuela, Cuba, or other Latin American countries. Along those same lines, I spoke to a professor at Florida International University, Professor Eduardo Gamara, and he was telling me how popular this Florida governor has become among these Latino voters in particular. You didn't see that kind of influence when he first ran for governor, but you could see that in the reelection. You know, Colombians had shifted way to the right, not as the, the Venezuelans, not as far. The Cubans had shifted right. And that what unified them all was this enormous support for DeSantis. And so what he's talking about is findings from a poll they conducted more than a year ago, talking to different Latinos about how they felt that the Florida governor was doing in terms of different issues. And he said a lot of them would repeat a lot of the same lines from the governor, clearly showing they're aligned and on the same page with him. That's so interesting because it sounds almost like they moved to the right because of DeSantis's persona, because of who he has been as governor. I mean, is that what you're hearing from voters? You know, I think that they're meeting together at the right place at the right time. I mean, there was depressed voter turnout. We should note that in Miami-Dade, especially when we talk about Democrats. But these conservative Latino voters, what I heard a lot from them is they felt abandoned by Democrats. They felt like Republicans were doing a better job, especially paying attention to the issues in Latin America and some of these regimes that they're really worried about. One of those voters I talked to was Mario Sanchez. Um, he was telling me what a big fan he is of the Florida governor. Yo pienso que este debe ser un país fuerte y unido. Y la intención demócrata a veces veo como, como que dividen el país. 
And so what he's saying there is that Democrats spend a lot of time talking about things that do not exist, like racism. He's, he doesn't believe that that is an issue in this country. Rather, he, this is a Cuban-American who is talking about focusing on patriotism, on how to unite the country, and at how to keep us all Americans on the same page rather than focusing on the differences. And that's what's made him such a big fan of Governor DeSantis. I think it's really indicative of the line that DeSantis has been trying to walk. And it's going to be a really interesting hurdle for him in the 2024 presidential election if he does decide to get in. Because, you know, we're seeing that there's something like half of the Republican Party base is open to someone other than Trump. He's sort of running in the same lane as Trump, making an appeal with this culture warrior tactics to voters who uh, don't have college degrees, who make less money, when really he needs to also be able to pull over enough of those white-collar Republicans who do have college degrees and make more money. I'm struck hearing you say that there's this fine line DeSantis has to walk on some of these culture war issues because it seems like broadly the Republican Party seems to think that this is a winnable issue for them. I mean, you look at what happened in Congress today, House Republicans just a bit ago passed this legislation dubbed a parent's bill of rights that would, among other things, inform parents if their kids changed pronouns in school, um, what books, for example, are held in school libraries, etc. And and it seems like they think that this is a potentially really popular issue for them. They definitely see this as a wedge issue, as a way for them to get in on being able to split or divide Democrats um, and try to win over some independents. And I think as Claudia is talking about with a lot of the Latinos in South Florida, you know, this really does appeal to some of them because they're more culturally conservative. And that message has been really pushed by Republicans. Uh, and they have some polling on their side. I mean, if you look at the 2020 midterm elections, mm -hmm. the exit polls there, they asked our society's values on gender identity and sexual orientation changing for the worse, changing for the better or not getting better or worse. And, you know, half said that they're changing for the worse. 26 percent said they're changing for the better. Um, that included about 20 percent of Democrats who said that they're changing for the worse. Clearly a big split there and divide. Was this nationwide exit polling? Or that was nationwide polling? exit polling um, overall. Now, when you drill down to what they're doing in Florida specifically, in Florida itself, uh, there was a Siena poll last year that showed that uh, you know, more than two thirds of Republicans were in favor of the bill that DeSantis had pushed for uh, in limiting the kind of discussions about gender and sexual orientation in schools. Mm -hmm. uh, about a fifth of Democrats were in favor of that. When you look more broadly, though, nationally, it's more split. You have 51 percent of Americans supporting banning teachers teaching about sexual orientation or gender identity from K to three. Now, if that goes further, which it looks like DeSantis certainly thinks that he's got the ability to potentially push on, he's doubling down here. I don't know. There hasn't been any polling yet to show how people would feel about that all the way through 12th grade. But it's certainly one of those culture issues that Republicans have decided to really try and and home in on. Now, the difficulty for them is does it play in a general election in the same way it will in a primary? That was my co-host on the NPR Politics podcast, Asma Khalid talking to congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales and senior editor and correspondent Domenico Montanero. You can catch the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday afternoon, wherever you listen to podcasts.
listening to NPR News. Have you ever felt completely burnt out at work and thought, what if I just quit? Or maybe your work situation isn't bad, but you're ready for something new. You want to try another kind of job or start your own business. Maybe you want to leave a marriage or move to another state. One way or another, you're looking for a reset. And in these moments, it can help to crunch the numbers, to see what your finances look like, what might be possible for you, and when. Life Kit host Marielle Segarra is going to walk you through how to do that. We're going to use a financial framework from a book called The Great Money Reset. It's written by Jill Schlesinger, a business analyst at CBS News. And there are five steps. If I could have put this to music, I would have, and I'm not that talented. Um, I call it the fabulous five. Number one is to add up your resources. That's your paycheck, any savings you have, anything you own. When I say what you own, a lot of people will say to me, well, I don't own anything. And I say, but don't you have a 401k? Oh, yeah, I have that. So it really is um, a real calculation of kind of what you have and also what you might be giving up. And by the way, you might also have a 401k match from your employer. And maybe you have subsidized health insurance. Those benefits are things you might be giving up if you make the change you're considering. And that's all good information. Step two is to add up your debt, the mortgage, the credit card bills, that line of credit you took out to build another bathroom, your car loan, your student loan. And, you know, don't throw in the towel in that moment, okay? That's all I want to say. Like, I think that some people say, oh, I can't do it. I, I have all this debt. Okay, we may be able to still do something. Step three is housing. If you own a home, ask yourself some questions. If I were to sell this house right now, how would I feel? Would I feel like I could have more freedom to consider something else in the future? Also, how much money could I make by selling? Would it be better in the long run to rent the house out instead? And if you're currently renting a house or apartment from somebody else, the questions are different. It's more like, how much is this costing you compared to what it might cost to buy? You might have a better deal than you think. Next up, step four, is expenses. How much money do you spend every month? This is not about living like a monk. This is just accounting for what your needs are and then what you actually are spending your money on. Step five is to consider the obligations you have to others. Will you be taking care of your parents as they age? Or have you promised your kids that you'll pay their college tuition? Once you've gone through these five steps, it's time to do some analysis. If you, for instance, quit your job... What do you think will happen in each of these five categories in the best, middle, and worst case scenario? And then ask yourself, can I live with those scenarios? Sometimes the answer will be, yeah, let's do it. And sometimes it'll be no. And that's okay, by the way. It really is. I mean, isn't it okay to come through a process and say, huh, you know what? I don't want to do that. That's too much for me. You might come to a compromise with yourself instead. Like, I'm going to stay at this job a little longer and save up money while I bring down my expenses. You don't know if this money reset is within your grasp unless you actually stop the, like, fantasy land and do the math. You just don't know. And that's the whole point of this framework. It's meant to show you what's possible so you can make your own decision. For NPR News... I'm Marielle Segarra. LifeKit has more personal financial advice, and these are tips for how to do your taxes, make your budget, and more. You can find all of that information from LifeKit. Go to npr.org slash LifeKit.
What does Southwest Florida This is NPR News. Thanks for following the news on 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Josie Guarino. In the forecast, we're looking at clear skies for tonight. Temperatures around 38 degrees. Increasing clouds for the start of the work week tomorrow. Highs in the mid-50s. This is WBUR. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington with Clyde's, the joyous comedy from Pulitzer recipient Lynn Nottage at The Huntington, March 24th through April 23rd, HuntingtonTheater.org. And Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and counseling are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 5th. Janine Herbst with these headlines. Severe weather continues today across parts of the south. In Georgia, Governor Brian Kemp declared a state of emergency for Troop County as dozens of homes were damaged and several people injured after a tornado that touched down this morning. Meanwhile, cleanup is underway in Mississippi after a powerful tornado Friday night left at least 25 people dead, many others injured. Two towns in the western part of the state were destroyed. The storms left at least one person dead in Alabama. And President Biden's choice to run the FAA has withdrawn his nomination. This after Denver International Airport CEO Philip Washington appeared to lack enough support in the closely divided Senate. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News from Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Subaru, introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all-electric zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at Subaru.com Solterra. And from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side-by-side. Side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. We want to focus now on a topic that got quite a bit of attention on Capitol Hill recently, drug shortages. This past week, the Senate Homeland Security Committee put out a new report and held a hearing on the link between drug shortages and national security. And that might not be news to you. It's definitely not news to parents like me who spent some anxious nights this winter driving from drugstore to drugstore to track down infant pain relievers or for people dealing with extended Ritalin shortages lately. But the report put this all into context and said it's become a much broader problem and includes drugs that are critical for providing care in hospitals and doctor's offices. Think antibiotics, sedatives, and IV fluids. The big takeaway from the hearing, a warning that if the U.S. doesn't beef up its pharmaceutical supply chain, meaning how it makes and gets and distributes medicine, the consequences could be disastrous. To help us better understand the issue, we've called Marta Vashinska. She has years of experience thinking about the distribution of pharmaceutical drugs. And right now, she's a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution, a policy think tank based in Washington, D.C., I spoke with her just after that Senate hearing and asked what concerns her the most about drug shortages right now. 
Well, there are two things that worry me. Number one is that we have had shortages of certain drugs for well over a decade, and we have made very little progress in trying to address the root causes of those shortages. What also worries me is that the threats to our supply chains are increasing, and those are the geopolitical risks that the uh, report really focused on. So this is a long-term trend, but is it fair to say the pandemic made it worse, or is it fair to say other factors in the past two years have made it worse? A lot of the supply chain disruptions during the pandemic were really large demand shocks where there was tremendous demand for certain products. I would say that when you look at the history of drug shortages that we have had in the United States, they typically have been caused by supply disruptions. With the onset of the pandemic and then the fallout with the triplemic that we experienced at the beginning of this winter, this has been more of a trend towards demand shocks where there's really a large demand uh, for a particular drug and production just does not keep up. How realistic is it to do what the lawmakers are calling for and, and change the drug supply chain so that it's coming more from inside the U.S.? Oh, that's that's hard. Um, yeah, because it's a good soundbite, but but your response <laughs> makes it seem like it's not something happening anytime soon. It's not happening anytime soon because our supply chains are incredibly complex and, and uh, enormous. So for us to think about bringing this enormous, enormous uh, supply chain back into the United States, it's just simply not feasible. Given that, as you said, uh, most companies are going to be doing everything they can to keep their their margins, which are small to begin with, uh, to, to, to keep costs down, given that these are these are global manufacturing networks, and you said you don't see that changing anytime soon. What would your top suggestions be to make this supply more reliable and to, to cut down on some of these shortages that we've been seeing in recent years? So the government can help engage in a number of ways. One of the ways to do this is to enable greater transparency around manufacturing uh, processes and manufacturing reliability. It's really important to get the buyers both empowered, but also potentially nudged towards really thinking about where they source product. To the extent that the government is going to be providing interventions, let's say paying for buffer inventory for certain drugs, or if the government were to create subsidies for bringing certain products or certain key starting materials into the United States, the government needs to think about which ones are the most important. For us to do this, we need to have much stronger analytics and much better access to data, much of which we don't have. We know where our finished dose uh, facilities are, the active pharmaceutical ingredient facilities are, but we don't know where our inactive ingredients are manufactured. We don't know where our key starting materials are manufactured. Without having that insight, it's really difficult for the government to prioritize what to really support. Mm -hmm. Another piece that we need to rethink is actually the FDA's essential medicines list. That list was developed in response to the pandemic 
and it asked the FDA to create a list of drugs that we need in a pandemic or if there is a CBRN threat. So radiological, biological, nuclear. This is a, this is a set of drugs that we need if there is a crisis of a certain kind. It's not the same as a list of drugs without which we will have a public health crisis. So that's a starting point for us so that we can start thinking about what should we onshore, for example. That was Marta Vashinska. She's a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution where she focuses on health policy. Marta, thank you so much for bringing your expertise to us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been eight years since Singapore's founding father, Lee Kuan Yew, died. Ever since, his children have been fighting over the family home, and it's a conflict that shows no signs of ending. And it's also one that has exposed the cracks in Singapore's carefully crafted democratic narrative. NPR's Emily Fang reports. Singapore's founding father, Lee Kuan Yew, was clear about what he wanted to see happen to his house, located on a leafy street of the Southeast Asian city-state. I've told the cabinet when I'm dead, demolish it. I've seen other houses, Nehru's, Shakespeare, and it's a shambles after a while. Lee also wrote this in his will before his death in 2015. One of the proponents of knocking the colonial-style house down per the will is the father of Sheng Wu Lee. The younger Lee is now an economics professor at Harvard. However, he says his uncle is opposed to tearing the house down. But, you know, my uncle being the prime minister of Singapore, he has other ways to get his way. That uncle, Lee Hsien-Long, has been prime minister since 2004. His office referred NPR to a 2017 statement in which he states his belief is his father was open to renovating the property for his sister to live in. And that has meant this family feud over a house has become a matter of national concern. There's this, you know, hidden ministerial committee that's meant to try to figure out what my grandfather really wanted really, really wanted about his house. This year, Shomu Lee's parents fled the country after the state opened a new perjury investigation into them over the house dispute. Shomu Lee himself left in a hurry in 2017 after penning a private Facebook post accusing the Singaporean state of using lawsuits to silence critics. Uh, it used to be illegal in uh, Britain to say mean things about judges. So there's this old colonial era law called scandalizing the judiciary, which is a special kind of contempt of court. Uh, and the government, you know, through the attorney general's chambers, maintains that I have scandalized the judiciary. Lee was fined and disqualified three years later from running for public office by the attorney general's office, which is run by his uncle's former personal lawyer. Michael Barr is an associate professor at Flinders University in Australia who has written multiple books in Singaporean history and politics. He says this is a highly personal instance of Singapore's ruling party using the levers of power to quash any opposition. What makes this saga different is they're going after their own this time, over a piece of property. You've got what looks like a, an imperial struggle, a struggle in a royal family. It's the struggle for the, the Lee brand. And in the process, the struggle has exposed the far darker side, the authoritarian law and order governance model under Singapore's center-right ruling People's Action Party, or PAP, which Lee Kuan Yew co-founded. The power dynamics are extremely skewed. When Singapore became a sovereign state in 1965, they were the government and they've never lost an election since. This is Kirsten Hahn, a writer and activist in Singapore. She says the utter dominance of the PAP under Lee Kuan Yew and now under his son, Lee Xianlong, means... There is no real like 
independent mechanism to investigate allegations of abuse of power which the younger siblings have made. And so a lot of it is kind of just at the mercy of what the ruling party wants. Singapore's prime minister has denied this, saying in a statement sent to NPR, everyone is equal before the law. Sheng Wuli disagrees. Systems of sort of benevolent authoritarianism are fundamentally very fragile things. They depend on the forbearance of whoever wields power to not wield that power for petty and personal purposes. It's been a painful reckoning for the younger league. You know, obviously when you're a teenager in Singapore, very closely associated to the regime, you live a bit in a bubble. I've had to come to a reckoning with how much blood is in the ledger. And that's hard, right? Because obviously, you know, I loved my grandfather and I thought very well of him. He says it's taken years for him to accept that just as the prosperity of modern Singapore is part of his grandfather's legacy, so too is the city-state's lack of political checks and balances. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei. At this year's Grammy Awards, Lizzo took home the trophy for record of the year for her hit About Damn Time. But the award for Song of the Year went to Just Like That by Bonnie Raitt. Just like that, your life can change. In 2016, Bruno Mars won Record of the Year for Uptown Funk. And Song of the Year went to Ed Sheeran's Thinking Out Loud. So honey, now. The difference between song and record of the year can be confusing. So confusing that we actually messed it up on a story at NPR.org and we had to issue a correction. Look, we mess up and we want to try and show our listeners how we deal with our mistakes behind the scenes. And in this case, I will say it's confusing. Song and record are interchangeable to many people. Even more confusing, records weren't a thing anymore and then they were again. So we are going to try and clear this up. And there is one clear person at NPR who can help us do that. Stephen Thompson of NPR Music. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Scott. Great to be here. So I will admit that at this moment, talking to you, I truly do not know the difference between song and record of the year. So can you can you explain it to me before you explain it to anybody else? Well, first of all, Scott, in the spirit of the segment, I have to correct you on something you said in your intro. You said Uptown Funk is by Bruno Mars. It is actually by Mark Ronson, a a record producer working with Bruno Mars. Wow. we are all about accuracy. Clearly. Um, to answer your question about the difference between Song of the Year and Record of the Year, basically the Grammys split these categories up um, to differentiate between the complete package of a song mm-hmm. and simply the the writing of a song. Okay. So one is a composition award. One is a composition and performance and production award. So based on your correction of me in this correction segment, (laughs) I'm going to guess that record of the year is the songwriting focus. Uh, No, song of the year Ah! is the songwriting focus. Wow. The mnemonic device I use is just song is short for songwriting. Okay. So let's just parse this out a little bit. When you say songwriting, do you mean the lyrics on paper? Does that mean the musical composition? I mean, what exactly are we talking about here? It's both music okay. and lyrics. Uh, so, so melody, words, anything that goes into writing the song. 
And so when they gave Bonnie Raitt Song of the Year for Just Like That, they were looking at the composition of that song, the lyrics of the song. And if you listen to Just Like That, it is a beautiful lyric. It's a song about organ donation and kind of there's a little bit of a storytelling angle to the song where a mystery is kind of solved over the course of the track. It was your son's heart that saved me And a life you gave us both and it's a little bit different from a song like Lizzo's About Damn Time, which is this really rich, lavish production where just like every second of that song just sounds perfect. This year was a case where I thought it was pretty, there was a pretty clear delineation between what was a songwriting award versus what was a, uh, what was a song making award. And when you talk about the full package of the song and the song making, what would the different things that voters are thinking about be. You know how every year we have a discussion around like, what is the song of the summer? What are we going to remember as the song of the summer? And it's whatever yeah. song was, you know, blasting out of boom boxes and car stereos and, and whatever. I think of record of the year as kind of that same sort of thing. What is the, what is the song that really represented the sound of popular music in a given year? I think Uptown Funk is a really good example of a song that really felt like a record of the year because that song was so ubiquitous. It was inescapable. Uh, it was just like a very full and rich and vibrant production. You know, as opposed to song of the year, I think of somebody like sitting at a piano mm -hmm. and, and kind of crafting some, some really heartfelt piece. And obviously... There have been many years in which the song of the year is just is like a song that is just a, like a richly produced pop hit that isn't necessarily deeply lyrically and melodically brilliant. Um, but I think of record of the year as being kind of the the what one song represents the sound of music in a given year. Well, Stephen Thompson of NPR Music, we've made corrections today. We've been corrected. <laughs> we've listened to some music. Thank you for going on this journey with me. Thank you. We always strive to get it right. But when we don't, you can send us an email at corrections at npr.org. For Sunday, that's All Things Considered from NPR News. And before we go, a request for Pokemon fans. The Pokemon world is saying goodbye to one of its main characters, Ash Ketchum. The legendary character has been a huge part of the series since 1997, so we want to hear from you. Tell us how you'll remember Ash and what you're looking forward to in Pokemon's future.